Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Well, we've got an exciting report on oil and gas and met coal pricing and whatnot. It's all positive. I can't think of anything negative to say about oil price and gas pricing. And I'm, I'm going to extend that to thermal coal pricing and metallurgical coal pricing. The extent that you have positions in any of these companies, I don't think the shares have caught up with the prospect for pricing yet. I mean, they will, but I don't think yet. And the chance for a, a uh, reversal or to lose ground commodity pricing is low because of the situation in the Ukraine. Now, what has changed from last Wednesday and changed just in the last few days around and about? I mean, he's doing press conferences and on, you know, visiting a facility and he got a consistent message that, that there's no, 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 no progress made on negotiations with Ukraine. So it, it's hard to imagine that there'll be any kind of a negotiated settlement in the I would say indefinite future. What does indefinite future mean? Well, unless something happens, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, at the same time, OPEC, OPEC plus, which includes Russia, made a statement yesterday that it's not feasible for the OPEC countries to make up for loss of Russian production now. Russian production of oil is still being refined in Europe, but increasingly it, it will not be. I mean, the, whether it's a refiner in the UK or they will be looking to phase down oil from Russia. That oil will move to India, to China. It may move to Saudi Arabia where they have a pretty significant refining complex where they'll make products and ship it back to Europe. But it's going to take a while to get all those logistics working. So Russia producing 10 million barrels a day, it, they're going to, I'm, I'm almost sure they're going to have to shut in some production. Now, possible that we'll see some more oil from Iran, but I think the world is going to be short supply. The concern that have taken the price of oil for the last 48 hours or so back to pre-invasion levels relate principally to lockdowns in China. And I mean, to take a, a, a complex like Shanghai with 25 million people and basically, you know, because of zero COVID policy and effect shut, shut that down, just think the recent News, news reports in, in China, it's just not feasible. I mean, have people going hungry in their apartments. So 
you know, I, I, I think the Chinese are going to have to figure out another way and really a puzzle why they're having so much trouble in Europe and the U S and other places aren't, I, I think they were reluctant to use the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and which apparently work much better than their vaccines that they developed. So anyway, really strong oil market situation and strong prospects in terms of natural gas of course, natural gas is not in, on an international basis. LNG is actually off a little bit, off to about high 80, I mean, high, you know, 28, 27, you know, rather than being 30 at, at, at some points in the winter, and natural gas in Europe cuts to 50. That's all settled down a little bit, but that's still a huge premium over uh, U.S., you know, which is like $5 strip the next 12 months. And if you look at the next three or four years, $4 to bust up at least a buck and a half from where it had been, you know, recently at 250 or so. So natural gas companies are making it much more cash flow, being a debt paid down, they're uh, committing to not hedge anymore. So they're going to be a larger natural gas company, UT Antero or Katera. I'd mentioned Southwestern because we own a lot of it, but, you know, I don't think the same quality as Antero and UT and Katera are, 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 paying down their debt, swearing off hedging. And, you know, now fundamentally different than oil because oil set on a worldwide basis. Natural gas is LNG export is, is maybe 13 out of total demand. That's 95 or so. It will go up over time because, you know, $5 plus $2 liquefied plus a buck or a buck and a half for transportation. That's $9 against 28. So. These things will go up, but they take two years to build, maybe two and a half years to build. So it, it'll go, and they're very capital intensive. So they'll they'll go up over time, and they'll they'll but they'll get contracts to do this from Europe and and, and Asia, and so that's good news. The other uses of natural gas in our country are about flat power. You know. The, you know, if you take out LNG, you're down to ADPs or something. That's about a third, a third, a third power, industrial, and residential, commercial. And, you know, all those things put together are flat. I mean, power might go up a little bit, but remember, power is complete with all that wind and solar coming out, which will always be produced because of very low variable cost. Residential, commercial, flat, industrial, flat. LNG is going up. One of the problems is that if LNG uh, demand only goes up five Bs in the next four years, let's say, which is probably a realistic target, production could go up. Now, last in, in 21, production went up four Bs, two from the Hanksville, which is beat at Louisiana, beat LNG export, and then two from the Fussy gas premium. So, you know, if you could have lower gas prices if if the Permian and, and Hainesville Marsalt, which is our biggest field, is around 35 feet, putting the Utica was flat. But I mean, if it went up a little, if Hainesville continued to go up a little, I'm pretty sure the associated gas at these oil prices from the from the Permian, from the Midland Basin, the Delaware Basin, would go up. I'm all concerned about having some extra gas supply. For the moment, you know, it looks really, really strong. And now, that now, there is a projection that by 2030, 
LNG will be 30. That seems like a very high number to go from 13 now to now with 22, eight years, you know, develop 17 Bs. That seems very optimistic. But there is one of these uh, consultants out there saying that definitely would change things. But once again, it takes a couple of years to build these things, you know. So I just want to talk about thermal coal because one of the things Europeans have done is, is they use a lot of natural gas, and it's very hard for them to clear off natural gas from gas pump now. So they're going to use import LNG. In other words, if you're going to try to diversify their sources. But one thing they could they could do and have done is to ban Russian thermal and net coal exports. And that has an enormous impact on thermal coal pricing and net coal pricing. And so net coal pricing is very, very high. Now, it will go down at some point. I mean, that, there's nothing at all those net coal pricing, but we, we, in the Metro business, where we've got two companies, we've got in uh, Virginia, and we have a private company in, in Australia. But just to give you a for instance, in Australia, we own about half of this company for about $40 million. And at these Metro prices, this company generates $40 million a month of cash flow. I mean, so obviously, those Metro prices are going to have to come down. I mean, that's just not feasible to continue at that level. But but this is these these are spectacular prices. And you know, it just come down a lot. They'll be, you know, very, very economic. I don't really have a very good feel for other commodities. We are in some of our companies copper producers or we're building well, basically we we buy these projects where three, four hundred million have gone in and Fortunately, we did a couple of them where we were able to acquire title to them for, you know, like 10 cents on the dollar. A copper, which I don't really have much of a feel for, is, you know, four and a half dollars a pound. I mean, when we made these investments, it was $2 a pound. What do you know? The cost of the Iranians projects is about $2 a pound. So when we bought into them or took over control of them, you know, there, there was no way to make cash flow. But, you know, we thought, with electric cars and whatnot, there'd be more copper use, and so it's coming out very, very well. Don't really have a feel for copper stock. The other commodities, we're beginning to learn about farm commodities because one of our other businesses is to build up a terminal on the lower Mississippi. And rather than handling oil products, it's going to be handling veg oil. So we're learning about soybeans and soybean crushers and whatnot. Obviously, Farm commodities uh, have gone up a lot because of of you know you know not having production from the Ukraine and and not having production from Russia you know welcome it and you know, all all that's going to be sanctioned so so we're, we're learning about farm commodities. The president was in Iowa and said he'd go to fifteen percent ethanol and gasoline as though that was going to help. I saw a squib in the paper this morning. The 200,000 gas stations in our country, only 2,000 are equipped to handle 15% ethanol. So clearly, with the midterms coming, the Democratic Party and, and especially the president is not looking forward to losing control of the House of Representatives and maybe losing, losing a majority in the Senate. So they're going to 
pull every 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 possible lever they can to try to do better in November. But I don't think ethanol was a terribly good idea. I don't think releasing a million barrels a day out of the strategic petroleum reserve is a terribly good idea either. But you know, they're they're that that's our that's our system, and they will you know they will those those kinds of things. As an investor, as an oil gas investor, you know it just you know doesn't really make too much difference. On interest rates, as I said, and, and Michael's going to take this up too because he spent a lot of time talking about it, thinking about it. What will the five-year bond be? What will the five-year bond be? And uh, now people are really focused not only on increasing the Fed funds rate, but also the last set of Fed minutes talked about them reducing the balance sheet at the rate of $95 billion a month. Sixty billion of treasuries and thirty-five billion of mortgage bonds. Mortgage rates are up from like three percent to five percent just in the past forty-five, sixty days. And so, where's that five-year bond now? You know, I expect this is a naive view, but why wouldn't the five, the ten-year bond be whatever the rate of inflation is plus a point or two so that it be positively current? Rate of inflation is running six or seven percent, maybe not eight and a half percent. The headline number this month can it be brought down to three percent or something closer to their long-term target of two percent? They had this two percent target forever, and they they couldn't get the economy to where it actually had two percent inflation. Now could they possibly get back to three? But even three plus say a point or point and a half would be four four and a half. And yet all the Experts and how U.S. bond markets work say, you know, predict that, you know, 280 or wherever it is now is a good buy. I, I don't understand it. And I kind of give it some credence because the people who are, who are making these uh, assessments are, this is what they do for a living. They do this all day, every day. And been through lots of, lots of uh, cycles and interest rate moves. How, how does this impact what we're trying to do, which is try to, you know, double our money or invested assets, value of our invested assets every five years, that's a 15% compound rate of return. How does it make a difference? I think this theory that somehow higher interest rates are bad for tech stocks is kind of nutty. I mean, what, what are people saying? That because tech stocks are growing, a higher discount rate or a higher interest rate means you'll pay less for that stock. I, I, it, that doesn't make any sense to me either. But with that, I'm going to turn it over to Mike. He and his partner have been, have been focused on this. But the only thing I'll add is there's no question that you want to, since you can't know how, how where inflation will stand a year from now or two years from now, you want to be in businesses, businesses you own, or if you're buying a, a new position that was, that aren't impacted by this, that don't have high labor costs. And of course, that points us to people. Things like Salesforce, Microsoft, Snowflake, you know, things where like the B to B Rob B to C with that, you know, gonna turn up for the rest of the half hour to Mike. Over to you, Mike. Yeah. On on the ten year and in interest rates, I mean, most of my investing career, the interest rates have just been low. So this has been a good period of time to kind of realize that things are changing. What what are things going forward? 
I'm certainly not a macro expert and I won't pretend to be, but you look at the 210 and that inversion seems to be a leading indicator. And then you talk to another group of people and people and they say, well, actually it's the three month, 10 year spread that's more important. And that one's got plenty of room and maybe that's, that means everything's just fine. I, I think what I'd said is, is probably the, the right advice, at least for, for me is focus on owning really high quality companies that can withstand inflation better than others. And, you know, we, we've spent some time looking on a bunch of different sectors and different themes in particular that we like, and some of them we've come up dry. I mean, we talk about the EVs and battery technology. It's is an interesting theme. It's an area that we spend a lot of time on, but you know, you think about all the pieces that are moving there. You've got the defense production act coming in to try to fund some of the, the development and production of batteries in the U S does that really make a difference for battery technology? Probably not. Probably kind of falls under the same category of political maneuvers that releasing oil from the strategic reserves and whatnot fall under. You know, my perspective on that industry in particular is that Tesla's really taken the right path and that's to do marginal improvements on the lithium ion cell and making them better and better and cheaper and cheaper every year. There are new chemistries out there, solid state, different sodium ion. There's a bunch of different stuff and cool research that's going on. But I think that the vast majority, certainly for the next five years and probably longer of battery electric vehicles are going to be based on lithium cells. So, you know, that brings up the kind of some interesting things that have happened to the commodity markets. We saw what happened with both nickel and lithium prices skyrocketing in the futures market, technical issues with, with the producers that were hedging, selling forward in this futures market, getting margin calls. And uh, it, it, it's really sort of screwy at the moment. The high level analysis on lithium is that there's not really enough lithium being produced today. And again, mining's not by any means my expertise. Hunt knows a lot more about, about lithium, but my, my perspective is, is that the players that are doing that stuff will increase their production in order to meet the market demand for it. But I don't think the forecasts that are given by all the EV companies, and that's everybody from Tesla to Rivian to the traditional ICE companies, Volkswagen, Honda, et cetera, their forecast for what they want to produce in battery electric vehicles in 2025 is is not achievable with uh, even dramatic increases to lithium production. So, you know, where is that play? I mean, what does that mean for EVs and this transition to metals powered parts of our economy? You know, I think the battery makers maybe end up doing well, but again, we identified that they're all overseas. So you'd have to get comfortable with investing in China, maybe in, um, maybe LG Chem, but again, they're expensive. You, you know, you gotta be careful where you play. I think the EV makers, BYD, Tesla, both of them are very heavily involved in their battery production and design. So that's really interesting. But again, look at Tesla, it's very expensive. And BYD, again, is uh, a Chinese business. Mike has this incredible statistic on Tesla. I have seen it, and it's an Elon Musk special, but predicting that Tesla 
would sell 10% of all new cars within a few years built in the world. It's a stated target by Tesla that they will produce 20% of the global market for vehicles. So you're talking 20 million units a year. Um, and we talked a little bit about Twitter and Tesla last week, but Elon's one of the most forward thinking executives that's ever existed. I mean, most people, myself included, can't keep up with his level of forward thinking. You go back and look at what he said three, five, and seven years ago, the most of us kind of glossed over what he was, what he was trying to communicate. And this reality that we're in today, as far as a shortage of materials for batteries is materializing. And not a lot of people saw that coming. Speaking for myself and Mike, we just missed that a lot. I mean, it's always expensive and, you know, it must seem crazy. But if you think about it, it's probably the best way to take advantage of batteries because they've been way ahead in terms of trying to figure out how to make batteries and, and source the material. And I used to think Bucks was just kind of some crazy guy, you know, sleeping on the factory floor when they couldn't. You know, the first factory in California couldn't get production of bottle freeze up. I mean, oh, this guy is nuts. But, you know, as Mike says, yeah, you look at the record, pretty impressive now. We spent time last week talk, or the week before talking about Twitter, and but he said, well, that he bought 9.9. The reason he upped up more than 9.9 is, I believe, if you go over there, over 9.9, and you within six months, I think there's a disgorgement rule where you have to turn the profits back to the company. And I may be wrong on that, but I think that's why people tend to stop at 9.9. They apparently, they want to get up to take a board seat, but have them commit to not being more than, I think, 15.6 or something like that. And he turned that down. So clearly he's in a position now where you know, he could acquire more or acquire effective control of business. My guess is that he, if this is a sideline form, that, you know, that he doesn't really have a Twitter plan, but you can't know that for sure. Uh, certainly the air has come out of the, Mike spent time on Twitter, I spent time on Twitter. I mean, the problem with Twitter is they really kind of stagnated and, we, we just have a few minutes left. I want to draw Mike out on this, this, uh, difference between B2B, which is, you know, business selling to another business. So that could be Salesforce, that'd be Snowflake. That'd be an awful lot of Microsoft and B2C. B2C would be the busy streaming service and, and B2C would be electric vehicles. I think in this inflationary environment, B2B has everything to be said for it, but definitely, especially if you can show that business runs more efficiently and you can do it uh, efficiently, generally it's the same amount of work done with fewer people or be more efficient about how people are deployed. I think that's very important where it's especially a big ticket purchase, but I think any purchase by the consumer like cars, I mean, used cars. Brian and his partnership is Carvana. They're, they're getting beaten up on the account that Betsy and Corey and I look after. We have CarMax. CarMax is getting beaten up. I mean, used cars were great during the pandemic, but they'll go up like 20% housing. You know, I'm a long-term loads holder. I 
know, I will sit there with the stock, but I mean, it, it's going to get beaten up because I think because people are just going to be reluctant to make bigger purchases like redoing a kitchen or, or whatnot, you know, it really has an impact on both. Same thing with housing, higher mortgages, right? And I think with this uncertainty, you know, we talked about Russia and Ukraine before, but, you know, with the midterms pending, general dissatisfaction with the Biden administration, feeling that, you know, oh my goodness, suppose Biden was really unpopular, we got Trump again in 24, it just creates a lot of uncertainty. So business to business is is going to be a better place to be because in place, I think it's also going to be a better place to be because a lot of these B2C things are, uh, you know, discretionary. I mean, they, you know, necessarily have to have them. And the example when Mike, I, I've had board meetings and whatnot, so Mike and I just talked to a few minutes, but, you know, as Mike said, how would you like to be Netflix in this environment and be trying to, you know, add subscribers or not have a net subscriber loss? You'd prefer to invest in B2B rather than B2C. I mean, and just in the remaining couple of minutes, I might can add, add some color on that, how a Netflix is, is challenged in this environment. Netflix has had slowing user growth, but over the course of the last five years or so, they've raised their price nearly every year and they've gone from, I think it was like seven bucks a month, maybe eight bucks to 16. And that, that's, you can keep doing that as long as you're still growing your numbers. I think that the management team at Netflix is going to be a little more challenged to raise that price when they're, when they're user growth in policing the UX is not going up. So I totally agree. Business to business is a way to go when it comes to investing in software. Again, stuff that you can't live without or makes your business more efficient. And in an inflationary environment, that efficiency play is super important. Think about all these companies trying to, especially if you're growing, trying to hire people. If you can reduce your headcount head count growth rate by 10% because you're using better software systems, then you're, you're going to save a small fortune. And that makes purchasing some of these different and relatively expensive software solutions complete no-brainers. Now, during the pandemic, we saw software multiples. Again, most software companies, especially um, software as a service companies, are valued on a multiple of revenue. They were overvalued relatively to where they are today. They were very expensive um, during the pandemic and they've come back down to within a range that is sort of normal. So the key is finding businesses that are very good at what they do. Again, like the more durable businesses tend to be ones like a, a Salesforce, Microsoft that provide a service or a tool that businesses can't live without. That's a great. Great break. And everyone have a good long weekend over the Easter weekend. And uh, we'll be on again next Wednesday. Everyone stay healthy. Take care.
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.